you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, our text this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is really a sermon in and of itself. We could probably just read the whole text of the entire chapter and, and be done, because there Paul is emphasizing and clarifying and explaining what Jeff and Pastor Todd read earlier, the resurrection, I mean the, the, the crucifixion, the burial, and then the resurrection of our Lord. Paul is just saying this is, this is why it's important. I entitled the sermon, Must I Believe in the Resurrection? Well, I've, I've already shown you that Thomas Jefferson didn't. Someone asked me, why would, he leave off, why would he leave off the resurrection? Well, if you read the whole thing, and I didn't have time to read this whole Bible. It's a lot shorter than our New Testament, by the way. But if you read the whole thing, you notice that he took out every miracle that is there. Every, every single miracle. And just left in what he thought were the pertinent teachings of our Lord. He thought the teachings of Christ were so beautiful that they were just messed up by all these miraculous things, turning water into wine and and, and, and healing blind men and, and calling, causing people who are crippled to stand up and walk. Jefferson just thought that was just such a, such a beautiful story without all of that that just kind of cluttered it up. So he cut it all out. Well, Jefferson's not the only person who's tried to do that through history. Over and over and over again, people have tried to, to eliminate the miraculous, eliminate what Christ said was true in order to just make it more palatable to the reason of, of men and the reason of women who just kind of say things like, dead men just don't come back to life. I did find it interesting. I hope you caught this. When Between what Jeff was reading and what Pastor Todd was reading, I, I hope you noticed the, uh, uh, something very significant there. The disciples were away hiding and were not anticipating him coming back to life even though Jesus had told them over and over and over again, I must die and on the third day I will rise, they missed it. But the Jewish leaders, they went to the authorities and they said to them, they said, listen, this deceiver, this one who, who deceived the people and has people following after him, this deceiver said that if we kill him, he'll come back to life on the third day. You got to put a stop to that. And if somebody said, don't you realize and don't you suppose that those Roman soldiers that were assigned by Pilate to guard that tomb thought they were involved in the most mundane, unnecessary, boring assignment that they could have ever had? There's a dead man there. And dead men stay in the grave. That's just the, that's the law of physics. That's the law of, of humanity. Dead men stay in the grave. Boy, were they surprised. At dawn, on that first resurrection day, when Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords, the, the, the God-man, the God who came in the flesh to dwell among us, as John says in John chapter 1, came bursting forth out of that tomb, that stone that was so huge was rolled away. And he came forth alive. He didn't come forth limping. He didn't come forth in exhaustion. 
He didn't come forth as one who was sorely wounded, and so he would never be able to convince anybody that it was anything but just maybe a, a swooned away. No, he came forth victorious. I, I love that song that we sang there, Living Hope, at the end. And, and the, uh, I, I was going to take a picture of it so I didn't forget, but I just looked up the lyrics here so I wouldn't forget the exact wording. On that verse it says, Then came the morning that sealed the promise. That's this morning. Then came the morning that sealed the promise. What was the promise? The promise was that if I go to the cross and suffer and die, all who believe on me and that sacrifice and that substitution, all who believe on me will have eternal life. That was a glorious promise that Jesus made throughout his ministry, and yet it looked like it died when the light went out. But when he rose... When he came forth out of the grave, he sealed the promise. He sealed his own words that everything I have said and everything that I have done has been from God Almighty, creator, sustainer, and now redeemer of his people. What a glorious thought. Then came the morning that sealed the promise. I, I just like the way it said the next verse, though, next phrase. Your buried body began to breathe. There's another song I love uh, for, by, by Michael Peterson, who wrote the song that the choir said, did this morning, and, and Dustin. And, and it's entitled, just, I can't think of the title, but he talks about he, he took one breath and put death to death. What? His heart beats, thank you. His heart beats. And he took one breath and it put death to death. That's what this is all about, folks. This is, not, this is not just religious jargon. This is not just some kind of ritualistic thing that we go through in order to say, okay, we've done it and we talked about it and that's it. This is reality. This is absolute reality of what took place on that morning. Now, Jefferson, as I said, is not the only one who's tried to dis, uh, disprove it or dissuade us from believing it. All through centuries, that's happened. I remember one of my favorite skeptics was a guy named Simon Greenleaf, who lived 1783 to 1852. He was a professor of law at Harvard University, not a slouchy school in that day. And, and he, taught, he taught law there, and he, he wrote a book entitled The, the, uh, the Laws of Legal Evidence... And, and so one of his students one time, who was a believer, said to Simon Greenleaf, why don't you take the laws of legal evidence that you wrote and apply it to the resurrection of Christ and see what it, how it comes out? And so he took up the challenge, and he did it, and he became a Christian. And, and he made the statement, he said, after I've examined this, it, it, there is no unbiased jury in the world that could look at the evidence and say that Christ is not truly risen. And then he wrote a book, The Laws of Legal Evidence Applied to the Gospel Writers, the Evangelists, he called them. I mean, the, the truth is, men have tried to dissuade it and disbelieve it and disprove it for all generations, and yet when it comes right down to it, most of them, if not all of them, but many of them, have come to believe that the resurrection is a fact of history and that Christ really did rise. You can find truth in some very unfamiliar places sometimes, and 
one thing that I've, I've found, you know, a lot of times I find that it's religious people who try to kind of direct us away from it. Like I was telling you, I read articles around Easter that talk about why the resurrection is not about penal substitution, why it's not about a, a price being paid and a sacrifice being made. It's, it's just about love or about the one I read this week that I liked the most. It was just to prove that Jesus was human. That's all the cross was about, was just to prove that Jesus was human. And a lot of religions, a lot of, a lot of churches, quote, end quote, I have to say, have, have gone to the point of saying, well, the cross is not about substitution. It's not about sacrifice. The cross is just about love and peace and joy. And, and the, uh, the cross is just about some kind of picture that we need to take something away from, but they're not really sure what. I love that you can find truth in very unlikely places sometime. I, I remember reading about two years ago an interview between a, a Unitarian minister, I keep doing this with all these things, you know what I mean, a Unitarian minister called Marilyn Selwell, and, and she was interviewing Christopher Hitchens, who was one of the most well-known atheists of our day, wrote a book, Why Religion Isn't Good. Why Christianity isn't good. And, and, and she was interviewing Hitchens on her radio program, and, and this short exchange took place. Sewell said, The religion you cite in your book is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I'm a liberal Christian, and I don't take the stories from Scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement, that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make any distinction between fundamentalist faith and li liberal religion? And this is how Hitchens, the atheist, answered her. I would say, Hitchens said, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and the Messiah, and that he rose again from the dead, and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're not really, any, not really in any kind of meaningful way a Christian. From the voice of an atheist, from the mouth of an atheist, realizing that if he is not who he said he was and did not do what the scripture says that he did, then you just can't call yourself a believer. That's why I said, must I believe in the resurrection? The apostle Paul said to the Roman Christians in Romans chapter 10, he said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Sounds to me like the Apostle Paul, on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, at least thought, yeah, you got to believe in the resurrection for any kind of meaningful relationship to Jesus Christ. Because that's what sealed the promise. That's what established the reality of what he said. Listen to what Paul says. I just realized that was all an introduction. You'll get out on time, I promise. Starting in verse 3 of chapter 15, hear what the apostle said. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Not according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but according to David and Moses and the prophets. The scriptures they knew of then were what we would call the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. But I declare to you that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried in a tomb. We stopped there Friday night, didn't we? Blew out the light. 
But we lit it again this morning because he was raised on the third day. How? In accordance with the scriptures. Then he appeared to Cephas or Peter, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me on the road to Damascus. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be even called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than all of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me, that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, the other apostles, so we preach, and so you believe. The narrative is quite simple. The narrative is just simply this. After three years or so of teaching and preaching and doing miracles and and showing us who God is and what God was like and pointing to the truth of the Scriptures, after three years, Jesus was crucified. Just as the Scripture said, He was crucified. He was... He died a horrible death on a cross. And, and after that crucifixion, these are just some irrefutable facts here, after that crucifixion, He was buried. Buried in a grave. And Jesus' death caused the disciples so much despair and to lose so much hope, believing that his life was ended, that they scattered. They ran. They hid. They feared for their own lives. They feared the cross was theirs next, that the, the authorities would come and take them away. And, and, and their experiences, although it was, was widely accepted, not, although not widely accepted, Many scholars hold that the tomb which Jesus was buried was discovered to be empty just a few days later. Critical scholars will argue that, and they will challenge that. But the truth is, the evidence is there that it was true. The evidence was there that it was not the disciples who scared those Roman soldiers in full combat array and scared them all so they could steal the body and go and take him away. The evidence will prove that it was not the Romans who said, you know, there might be something to that hoax, let's don't let it happen, so we'll go hide the body and take it away, and we'll keep it hidden. I mean, all the, all the Romans had to do, if that was the case, was come out a few days later, after all Jerusalem was abuzz with, he is risen, he is risen, Christ is risen, and just say, oh really, here's the body. And they never did that. They never did that. Because they didn't have it. And as far as the disciples go, if they had hidden that, if they had taken that body after scaring those mighty Roman soldiers, scared them away, stole the body, and taken it out and disposed of it so they could perpetuate some kind of, of hoax that he had risen again, it's amazing that every single one of them, every single apostle, died a martyr's death except John. And he died in exile. Every single one of them was killed for their faith. Killed perpetuating a lie. Now, I don't know, you may find it absolutely credible that, that 12 men made up this story, lied to the public, lied to the people, told them that Jesus had risen when really he hadn't, you might find it totally credible that they would then face horrible death and horrible, merciless 
torture in order to keep this lie alive. One of my favorite statements on that came from the lips of a man who was in prison himself because of a lie, and that was Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson said this, he said, I know the resurrection is a fact. And he said, you know what proved it to me? Watergate proved it to me. Now, some of you in here are too young to remember Watergate. But it was bad. It was really bad. And, and, and Watergate was a scandal that caused the toppling of the presidency of Richard Nixon. Many of you weren't even born when that took place. But Chuck Colson was known as, as uh, Nixon's hatchet man. He was his bad dude. And he went to prison for it. And he came to know Christ while in prison. And this is what he said, I know the resurrection of fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. How do I know this? Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world. And they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. They were falling all over each other trying to throw the other one under the bus. And they were claiming, oh, I, I, didn't, I wasn't really in on it, but it's all a lie. They did this and they did. They were trying to... It would have happened, folks, when you face stoning and beating but the disciples were transformed on that resurrection morning from doubters who were afraid to identify themselves with Jesus to bold proclaimers of his death. Colson said, would, would 12 apostles face torture and death for a lie? Absolutely not. It's funny, you think Watergate, a scandal of our country, a scandal of our government, was to Chuck Colson, and I would say also it's, it's valid to me, was proof of the resurrection. These disciples were transformed. Paul talks about it here. He appeared to the apostles. He appeared to, to all the apostles and to James, and, and he appeared to 500 at one time. And then by the grace of God, even after his ascension, he appeared to me on the road to Damascus and called me. You read the book of Acts, you find that the church heard that message and it began to grow. And men and women came to faith in this risen Lord and they began to proclaim it outside of Jerusalem, into Judea, into Samaria, into the uttermost parts of the world, even until it reached the shores years, years, years later of where we live now, the United States. The message moved, not because of a hoax, not because of a lie, but because it was true. The church was born, the church grew. And Sunday became the primary day of worship. Why? Why change the calendar? The early church in Acts, if you read it, went to the, tabernacle, went to the, to the temple, went to the, to the synagogue, and they worshiped on Saturday. But as the church grew and developed, they switched it to Sunday. Why would they do that? Because, folks, even though we meet here on Sunday today to talk about Resurrection Sunday, they changed the Sunday because every Sunday became a resurrection celebration. 
Every Sunday became a declaration that he is risen. It became the primary day of worship. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, who had been a skeptic, who even said, why are we, why are we listening to our brother? He's, he's out of his mind. The half-brother had been a skeptic, converted the faith and believed that he saw the resurrection, Jesus, resurrected Jesus. Quite a pattern. Quite a pattern of truth. So as you examine the evidence, you have to, you have to kind of do what Sir Conan Doyle said, the, the writer, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the, the writer of the Sherlock Holmes mysteries, who's one of my favorite stories. And, and, and Conan Doyle said this, he said, you know, when, you, when you've eliminated the impossible, he swooned away, it was a hallucination, it was stolen by the Romans, stolen by the disciples. When you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, it must be the truth. And even though to our modern ears the resurrection of Christ seems so improbable in so many ways, all the options have been eliminated. All the options have been shown as being failures in trying to explain it. As I said, when you, when you boil it all down and think it all through, there's not much left to say but that Jesus Christ is risen. After Paul was converted on the Damascus Road, on his way to persecute the church, on the way to imprison Christians, kill Christians, try to destroy the church itself, he was converted by the appearance of Christ. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? To which Saul said, or Paul said, who are you? I don't, I don't know who you are. I'm Jesus of Nazareth, the one you're persecuting. My people you are persecuting. He came blind and struck down by a bright light, and he, you know, the story went on in later, and, and the scales fell away, and he believed, he was baptized, and he became the chief writer of the New Testament, the chief interpreter of Christianity. He spoke the word of truth. In the book of Acts, I, I love the way he handles it when he goes to Acts and to Mars Hill. And he gets to Mars Hill and he preaches about this Christ. And, and in verse 30, the scripture says there, it says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul basically says, I want you to know, and this was weird to those philosophers at Athens. This was very weird for those listening to him at Mars Hill saying, this one has resurrected from the dead, Jesus Christ. You've heard about it, but you don't believe it, he said. But this is what God has said. He's appointed a day of judgment. He's going to judge the world by this one man. And to prove it, he raised him from the dead. Having heard the report, they were faced with a decision, just as you and I are. Having heard the fact that he raised from the dead after being buried, crucified, 
dying, being buried, and then three days later being raised from the dead in order to prove that he is the one by which God will judge the world in righteousness by the man Jesus. God appointed him. There is no other judge. There is no other Savior. It is, it is him. They faced a decision. You and I face that says in this particular instance, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. When they heard the resurrection of the dead, some said, that's, that's stupid, that's ridiculous. Who in the world could believe that? You must be out of your mind, Paul. Who do you, who do you think you are? Talking to us about a man coming back from the dead? Dead men don't rise. They mocked him, said he was crazy. That may happen to you when you tell people that you believe in a resurrected Christ. They may laugh at you. They may say you're out of your mind. It's nothing new. It's 2,000 years old. Some mocked when Paul said this one had risen from the dead. Then he said, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. This is kind of how I think they were. Hmm. Never thought about that. Not sure I believe it, but we'll talk to you about that again. Some mocked. Some pondered. But Luke says, so Paul went from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among whom also were Diogenes, the Areograph, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Paul said, Jesus is risen from the dead. What are you going to do with it? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say Jesus has risen from the dead. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to scoff or mock? Are you going to ponder it? Maybe. Or are you going to believe? It's really where Easter leaves us. That's where Resurrection Day leaves us. You either mock, question, or you believe. No real other options. And the options that change a life are you, you believe or you mock. You don't believe. Both of those have eternal consequences, folks. One to eternal damnation. One to eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that who 
whoever believes on him will have life and life everlasting, eternal life, life with him. Where are you this morning? Are you mocking? Are you pondering? Can we talk about it again? Your pastor, the pastor of this church would love to talk to you about it. Or are you believing? And not just with an intellectual belief. Oh, yeah, I believe you raised from the dead. No problem. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll buy that. But are you confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? Not just Savior. Lord of your life. Boss of your life. Believing in your heart, in the most innermost part of your life, that God did indeed raise him from the dead. And because of that, his resurrection power dwells in me, strengthens me, gives me hope for all eternity. Mocking, pondering, Believing. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice that then came the morning that sealed the promise. We're here to proclaim that and celebrate that this day. Then came the morning that sealed the promise. The morning when you put death to death. The morning when you verified. When you absolutely verified that everything you had said was true, which God with a loud voice, like he did at your baptism, like he did on the Mount of Transfiguration, without saying a word, he said, this is my beloved son, and I am well pleased in him because he has atoned for the sins of his people. take away our guilt, to take away our shame, to take our sin to that cross. Father, we know your Holy Spirit moves and shows us our need for a Savior and opens our eyes to see that Jesus is the only Savior. Father, I pray this morning that you would be glorified in what we've sung and what we've read and what we've heard you would be glorified and draw men and women to yourself. Draw men and women to yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of commitment, our hymn of praise.